Thank you, Josh. And I want to thank you and through you all your people for everything they've done. I know when you put on a thing like this and there's cakes and cups, uh, cupcakes and cookies, and I don't even look at them. I just have to <laughs> do that. But uh, I know there's a lot of people that play a part, ladies that prepare food and things like that. Uh, takes a real team effort to uh, pull things together. And that means a lot to us. <clears throat> All right, we're going to come back to the book of Romans. And uh, we're, going to, we're going to actually pick up in Romans chapter 3. And I'll just hit on a couple of points that I mentioned and, and then uh, see if we can get back from Romans 3 to Romans 5.1 where we kind of started. But we need to pray once again. <clears throat> you know, the Bible says pray without ceasing. And that means to pray like you breathe. You breathe in and you exhale. And you, you know, salvation, I don't know if you ever thought about this. A lot of people tell people to pray the salvation prayer so you can get pray saved. Well, if you're praying the salvation prayer, you're already saved. Yeah. Receiving the gospel is like you breathe in, and then the prayer of thanksgiving is, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. So we're, we have been breathing in, we're going to breathe out, and we're just going to express gratitude to prayer, and I encourage you to pray along with me. You know, when others are praying, it's always good to pray with them. Either praying in agreement, yes, Lord, I agree with what this guy is saying, uh, or adding things, Lord, in addition to this request, uh, so on and so forth. So pray with me, if you will. Let's join together at the throne of God's grace as we get into our last session tonight. Heavenly Father, how can we possibly express our gratitude for all that you have done for us? Father, as I look back over my life, I'm so overwhelmed with the grace and the mercy and the kindness that you have shown to me. Father, the times that you have protected, the times that you have delivered, the times that you have disciplined, even the correction of your sometimes severe hand is a kind mercy. Father, you love us with the love of a father that is everything that a father should be. All that a father on this earth could be and more. So, Father, as we open Your Word again tonight, will You continue to demonstrate Your compassion to us by making Your Word come alive. Let the Spirit of God walk among us and work in mighty power to drive the truth of Your Word deep into our souls that we would not forget it and that we would not suppress it. We would let it change our lives. May the Lord Jesus Christ continue to work in and through us as your spirit and your word are instruments to bring us more in, into conformity <clears throat> to your likeness, your plan, and your purpose. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I said something earlier that I think might bear just a little bit of clarification. <clears throat> I mentioned that God has a plan for your life. 
you know, sometimes, and I think Nan encouraged me to bring this out at the Arkansas conference, I probably got more response from this simple statement than anything in that conference. I should have just had her come up and teach the class. Everybody would have uh, been better off maybe, but she said, maybe you ought to explain to people the difference between the will of God and the plan of God. So I thought about that a little bit, and in the next session when I got up, I explained it like this. God's will as expressed in Scripture is the same for all of us. As we read the Word, it is God's will that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God's will that we walk in the Spirit, that we grow in the Word, that we pray. All of those things are the same for all of us. God's plan, however, is unique and individual. In other words, his plan for Paul was not the same as his plan for Peter. His plan for you is not the same as his plan for someone else. So we all pursue the will of God, knowing his will and doing his will. But when it comes to understanding his plan, uh, that's something you, you can't look in Scripture and say, who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to serve? What do you want me to do with my life? You know, I used Paul a moment ago as an example of a transformed life. And if you really stop and think about it, the wicked, vicious, brutal man that he was on the road to Damascus, do you know when you can tell the light really began to break through? When he said, Lord, what would you have me to do? That is a huge step. Lord, what would you have me to do? And so it's important for us. We are never going to know His plan for our life if we don't do His will. That's the key. We have to be willing to do the will of God in order for God to reveal to us, to lead us into that unique plan that He has for our life. I'll give you an example of that in just a moment. But in Romans, as I mentioned before, Paul begins chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 are all about the gospel The gospel is all about Jesus Christ, all about the fact that He is God who came in human flesh, went to the cross, died for us, paid the penalty for our sin, and was raised again. And because of that, Paul says, I am a debtor. I have an obligation of gratitude. He says, I am ready. I am ready to preach the gospel wherever and whenever that opportunity may come up. And not only am I a debtor and am I ready He says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I mentioned that the first three chapters talk all about condemnation, but it's sandwiched between that first section on the gospel and the last section that we're going to look at in our session uh, in this uh, time period. We're going to look at Romans 3, starting in verse 21. But I want to talk about that part, the sandwich, for just a moment. Because it's an essential part of the gospel. And we know that gospel means good news. But there's a part of that good news that we should not overlook. And that's the part from chapter 118 through 320. And that's the bad news. You know the bad news? There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that does good. You can see it right there in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. 
They have all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. The poison of asp is under their lips. The way of peace they have not known. He lays out for us the bad news. And the bad news is an essential part of the good news because you're not going to be motivated to receive the good news unless you understand the bad news. And so Paul lays all of that out for us in the intervening section between his two dominant gospel statements in the first three chapters, which we're going to pick up with now in Romans 3 and verse 21. I want to read this whole section because it's so critical. Verse 21 to 31 He says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Now, who would this, I I just have to pause as we go through and hit a few high points. Who would be concerned? In the Roman church, you have Gentile believers and you have Jewish believers. And there are parts of of the book of Romans that are addressing Paul, or Paul is addressing himself to particularly the Gentile believers, there are other parts that he's addressing himself to the Jews. And it's very important that we pick up on when he is targeting the Jewish people, because when we get to Romans chapter 9, it'll save us from making a huge mistake. And that huge mistake is the idea that God picks some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. That is not his point in Romans chapter 9. His point in Romans chapter 9 is the phenomenal grace that God has poured out on the Jewish people and how they have suppressed the truth. We saw that. How they have developed an idol. They actually had several idols. If you stop and think about it, every confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders of the Jews was about idolatry. Did you ever think about that? Every one of them. The temple had become their idol. The Sabbath had become their idol. The law had become their idol. The rules and the regulations, circumcision, whatever topic Jesus Christ was dealing with them on had become an idol in their life. You know why that's important? Because to some people, a church building becomes an idol. To some people, the rules and the regulations of that organization can become an idol. And the minute we begin to make those things an idol in our life, you can't have an idol and be holding to Christ at the same time. Very dangerous. It always has to bring us back to the Lord Jesus Christ. He always takes priority. He always takes preeminence in everything. So Paul is building a case here and he's saying the righteousness of God. Imagine the alarm bells that would go off in your mind if you were an Orthodox Jew apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Remember every truth was to be established by two or three witnesses and here you have the law and the prophets and the Apostle Paul confirming what he's saying here. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to notice this little phrase, unto all and upon all. Why does Paul use that? A lot of people have wrestled with this particular little phrase, and it's really very simple. Unto all, the gospel goes to the whole world. The gospel is a message to all. 
We give it without restraint. We give it without restriction. We give it without respect of persons. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It goes out unto all, but it rests upon all who believe. They make it their own through faith in Jesus Christ. So unto and upon all who believe, for there is no difference. What difference does God see in any unbelieving member of the human race? None. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What difference does God see in those who are His children? From a positional standpoint, none. They are all justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Now in practical areas, obviously there are some differences and we'll deal with those as the book continues. Verse 23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Anybody here in that group? All of us are. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Could I ask you a question? What is the antecedent? I'm not trying to get into a lot of grammar here because you can really get bogged down. What is the antecedent? Who is being justified freely? Could I suggest to you, and I've given you a bunch of appendices with a lot of information for you to study, and I didn't do this one, but could I suggest if you're motivated on your own, go through the book of Romans and do a study of the Word. You ready? It's a big one. It's important. You ready? All. All. Just study Paul's use of the word all. He just used it up here in, in uh, verse 22. Unto all and upon all. And you know what? People love to tell me that all doesn't always mean all. All doesn't always mean all. Well, that's true. Because we see it used two different ways here in verse 22. Unto all. Who's included in that all? Every member of the human race. And upon all. Who's included in that? Those who believe. So yeah, it's true. All doesn't mean all, but you identify what the all means by the context. What are the three number one rules of biblical interpretation? Number one, context. Number two, number three, context. And that includes historical context, grammatical context, cultural context, linguistic context. We can go on and on and on. We always have to look at it within the context. Being justified freely, all who believe of the all who have sinned are justified freely. We'll see in Romans 6.23, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. We're going to deal with the issue of justification shortly, so I'm not going to go further into that. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. The word propitiation should literally be translated mercy seat, as it is in Hebrews 9 and verse 5. The word propitiation is okay as long as you understand what it means. It's a theological term that means satisfaction. 
Jesus Christ became the satisfaction for our sin. He satisfied the righteous demand of the Father that sin must be judged. You know, we know that God is love. John tells us that God is love. That's a wonderful statement. But that's not all He is. He is also righteous. He is also just. He is also holy. Yes, He is sovereign. You know, there are people that want to make sovereignty everything that God is. But we need to understand that all of His characteristics, all of the areas of His essence complement one another. They don't conflict with one another. In other words, He is unified and whole in His essence. So God has set Jesus Christ forth as a mercy seat. Propitiation, satisfaction of the righteous demands of God by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. This does not mean that God winked at the sins committed in the Old Testament. What it literally means is God chose not to carry out retribution on those sins in light of what was about to happen. We know that God is not subject to time. You and I are. You know, we live on a timeline. Eternity past. Eternity future. The cross is a central figure of human history. We look back to the cross for salvation. Abraham looked forward to the cross for salvation. He looked to the seed of the woman. The promise of the gospel was made immediately after the fall of man. And so the whole issue is here. But while we are limited in time, looking back and looking forward, God is outside of time. He is not subject to time. You say, how could God know me in Christ before the foundation of the world? Well, it's very simple. He knows you now in Christ, doesn't He? What He knows now, He knew then in the same way that He knows it now. Because He's not subject to time. He's not limited as we are. He lives in a dimension outside of time. You know what really blows my mind when I think about this? One day we are going to live in eternity. You ready for this? When you get into the book of Revelation and you get toward the end of the book of Revelation, it's talking about the new heavens and the new earth and we're talking about the eternal state and it's going to be marvelous. We're going to be there in the kingdom and everybody thinks of streets of gold as if they're going to go chip some up. You know, there's going to be gold on the streets. No, it's gold's going to be worth as much as asphalt. You, you don't go out there on the pavement and chip it up, do you? All that's trying to tell us is that the most valuable things here on this earth are the least valuable things in heaven. What did Jesus say? The things that men value the most are despicable in the sight of God. But here's the thing that blows my mind. When we're there in that new heaven and new earth, there are going to be trees that are going to be bearing fruit every month. Did you get that? In eternity, every month. What are months made up of? Days. What are days made up of? Minutes, seconds, moments. Do you know what I... This is just my very humble opinion. 
Do you know how I think that fits together? Somehow the dimension that God lives in, which you and I can't even comprehend at this moment, and the time that we are subject to here and now are going to be brought together into one. And there are going to be trees bearing fruit, a different fruit every month, and we're going to have months and days and years in eternity forever and ever and ever. Can I understand how all that's going to work out? Not smart enough. But I believe it. And I believe that the day that I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior, God did not sit up and go, oh, what a good boy. I'm so surprised. I never thought this one would ever believe. No, because the Scripture says He knew me in Christ before the world began. But the important phrase that we want to forget about is in Christ. How could the Father know the Son who would one day come into the world, go to the cross, die for the sins of every member of the human race, be raised from the dead, and go back and be seated at His right hand, and God knows Him intimately, and now I'm united with Him, raised up with Christ, made alive with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly places, and somehow all of a sudden it's a surprise to Him that I came to Christ? What a marvelous plan. Notice verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness. I want you to get this, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. <clears throat> that He may be just. God is going to justify Himself. I'll tell you something that will shock you. I said at one time in a conference and I saw people it was like they were getting ready to flee out the back door. When God is judged, He will be justified. Does that shock you? When God is judged, He will be justified. When is God going to be judged? We'll just back up with me in Romans chapter 3. Verse 1, what advantage then has the Jew? Who's he talking to? Obviously Jews. What is the prophet of circumcision? Well, the Jews would say everything. Paul says, I agree much every way. Chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. Hang on to that because it becomes the central argument in Romans chapter 9. The intricate connections in the book of Romans just drive me crazy. It's like a weaving or a crochet, and the longer I study it and the deeper I go into it, the more I'm going, hey, wait, this connects over here. The oracles of God. What if some did not believe? Verse 3, will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Get ready. Verse 4, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written that you, God, may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. You say, well, when is God ever going to be judged? I'll tell you when. There is a day coming 
called the white throne judgment. And all unsaved mankind are going to stand before the Lord. And you know what? Every one of them has an excuse. Every one of them has an explanation. Every one of them has an argument. And you know what? They're going to get a chance to bring their case forward. Because they're going to say, God, you're not fair. You're not fair because I didn't hear the gospel. Or you're not fair because I saw too many hypocrites in church. Or you're not fair because that one pastor went astray and just caused me to reject all Christianity. Or you're not fair because of this or that. My father beat me. My mother deserted me. Whatever. They're going to get a chance to bring their case forward. Do you know what they're saying when they say God is not fair? They're judging God. The whole world, the whole universe, all of humanity that rejected Jesus Christ are going to have their chance to say, you're not fair. You know what God's going to do? I picture Him flipping a switch because they're all going to say, you know, I was better than most people. You know, I've worked in prisons, and if any of you have ever worked in prisons, you know no matter what crime those prisoners committed, they think they're not as bad as the guys that committed a different crime. Well, at least I never did this. God says, you're all guilty. And so after man has had their opportunity to bring their charges forward, God flips the switch. He says, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. And apart from the love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there is no hope. And do you know how convincing his argument is going to be? Did you wonder, ever wonder why it says every knee is going to bow? Do you know why every knee is going to bow? They're not going to be able to help it. Have you ever stopped and thought about the fact that God doesn't send people to hell? They're going to condemn themselves. They brought their case, and so convincing was God's response to their argument, they'll convict themselves. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God that He is righteous and that He is faithful. Let God be true, but every man a liar, that he may be justified in his sayings and overcome, he is judged. Well, let's carry on here. To demonstrate at the present time, verse 26, that he might be just and the justifier of the one that has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? Do you have anything to boast about? It's excluded. By what law? Works? No. By the law of faith. Do you know what faith is? <clears throat> there are people that will try to tell you faith is a work. Trusting in Jesus Christ is a work. Faith is an acknowledgement of two things. Number one, there is absolutely nothing I can do. I am totally helpless. I have nothing to offer. As the old song used to say, nothing in my hand I bring. Solely to the cross I cling. I have nothing to offer. That is the first acknowledgement. The second acknowledgement. What is it? The song, it just flits through my mind. My faith is only 
Jesus. My hope is only Jesus. All my hope is Him. Without Him, I have no hope. That's exactly what Paul is telling us here. Boasting is excluded. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Paul says, yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. By and through. What's the difference? Not really a lot except to distinguish the two different groups. One is by means of and the other is through the agency of. One God is going to justify all by the same means. Simple faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. To the contrary, we establish the law. Why? Because when you come to God in faith, what are you acknowledging? The law is true. See, what is it the law says back there in 310? There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none that seeks God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. What is faith saying? Faith puts its seal to that statement. That's me. That's me. I'm the one whose tongue is practicing deceit. I'm the one that has the poison of ass under my lips. You ever have those times when that poison comes out? To me, the most dangerous time in life is when you're driving. You know what I mean. You're at the stop sight, right? It's in there a stoplight, three cars ahead of you, light turns green. You're going, hey, the light's green. Guy sitting up there in the front and he goes, oh, I just noticed the light's green. Well, since the light's green, maybe I ought to go. Yeah, I guess I'll go. And then he goes, and of course the light changes, so you can't go. Poison of asp. You know what I'm talking about. And that's when you have to use confession. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. We could go on and on and on and on. We have to understand the bad news or we'll never come to the good news. And so Paul, in these first three chapters, deals with the doctrine of condemnation within the embrace, if you will, of the grace of God. Even in telling men, you're as bad as it gets, you are as far from God as you can possibly be, you are a helpless, hopeless sinner, even in telling them that, Paul says, I want to wrap this in the truth of the gospel. Is that not amazing? His grace overwhelms me. In your notes on page 4, you have eight truths that are brought out in this section about the gospel. You see them there? The doctrine of justification by faith is introduced and explained in Romans 3, 21 through 31, including issues that are critical to understanding Romans. I'm going to very quickly, for the sake of those who are listening, or will be listening, run through these. All mankind stands condemned by God, verse 23. Justification is a free gift of God's grace, verse 21 and 22. This gift is the result of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who becomes our mercy seat, verse 25. 
The work of Christ on the cross covers all sins, past, present, and future. That's implied by the phrase has passed over, referring to all sins previous to the cross as well as those afterwards. By this means of justification, God demonstrates His righteousness and that He is able to justify sinners without compromising His character. Why? Because He paid the price. God in Christ paid the price for our sins. Number six, faith excludes all boasting since we are justified without reference to the law, but by faith alone. Seven, God demonstrates that He is a God of all men by justifying Jews and Gentiles by grace through faith alone. And number eight, the gospel vindicates the law both in declaring everyone to be sinners and in the truth that Jesus Christ, our mercy seat, has fulfilled the law in every way. Notice that he immediately leads into, and this will get us to the end of our session tonight uh, pretty quickly here. What shall we say then in verse 1 of chapter 4 that Abraham our father... Who is he talking to? Talking to Jews. How come Paul keeps dealing so much with the Jews? Because you have to understand what comes through. The unspoken struggle, if you will, behind the book of Romans is there were Jews in Rome that were still resisting Paul's ministry. He's about to go there. He doesn't know it yet. He's going as a prisoner. When we read at the end of Acts chapter 27 that Paul had two years in his own rented dwelling as a prisoner of the Romans, chained to the wrist of a Roman soldier, but he had access that people could come to him. All of the Jewish believers of Rome came to him. And what do you find at the end of the story? Most of them rejected him. Even though they had trusted Christ, Jewish believers rejected the Apostle Paul. Have you ever thought about the fact that by the end of his ministry, Paul was persona non grata in the churches of Asia Minor? Do you remember what he wrote to Timothy? 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, writing from his Roman prison cell, I am sure that you know that all those of Asia have forsaken me. Do you have any idea how alone, how isolated the Apostle Paul was at the end of his life? Who were those of Asia? Well, you could start with the Galatians, the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. All those of Asia have forsaken me. Believers, people that gather together in churches, had rejected the ministry of the Apostle Paul. We don't, I think, sometimes realize how isolated and alone he felt. So he says, what shall we say that Abraham our father is found according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Do you know what verse 2 tells me? Paul read the book of James. You all run into this, I'm sure. The minute you get into James, faith without works is dead. Right? James 2.23. Was not our father Abraham justified by works when he offered Isaac on the altar? James says. Paul says, 
If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast in. Were Paul and James in opposition? No, they're in perfect agreement. Paul interprets what James means. Abraham was justified by works when he offered Isaac not before God, but before men. His faith was vindicated by his actions in the same way that you vindicate your claim that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ when you live a Christ-like life, when you live a godly life, when you live a faithful, growing, learning, maturing Christian experience, you are vindicating the fact, the claim that I trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. Abraham was not justified before God by anything that he did. He was justified by faith. So if Abraham, our father, was justified by works, hey, he's got something to boast about, but only before men. By the way, if you go back to James chapter 2, you'll notice that he keeps saying something that's very important. You see then. You see then. Look it up. Who's he talking to? He's talking to us as men observing the example of someone else's life and it's on a horizontal plane, not a vertical plane. God knew everything about Abraham before Abraham was ever born. But you and I need evidence, don't we? And Abraham gave us evidence. And we should give evidence to those around us. Verse 4, To him that works, the wages are not counted as grace but debt. But to him that does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Can I ask you a question? The gospel's good news, right? Who's it good news for? Good news for all? Good news for those who believe? Good news for the sinner? Is it good news for the saint? You know, I went to a seminary in Kazakhstan years ago. And I told the students that I was, I said, uh, my first class, I said, when Paul went to the Corinthians, he said, I can't, I determined to know nothing but Christ crucified. I said, that's what I've determined to teach you. And they went, oh man, we got a guy who's just going to talk about the cross. I said, I'm just going to talk to you about Christ crucified. So you know what I did? <coughs> this was a wonderful experience. I said, here's what I'm going to talk about. And they said, we know all about that. And I said, but... Have you learned in your school so far that there are 10 areas of systematic theology? Did you know that there is theology proper, doctrine of God, doctrine of the Holy Spirit, doctrine of Christ, bibliology, doctrine of the Bible, ecclesiology, doctrine of the church, eschatology, doctrine of last things, on and on and on. I went through all ten areas. I said, did you know that the truth of every single one of those is rooted right there? They said, really? And I had them. 
and they were with me the rest of the time. I said, let's see what we can learn about God by looking at the cross. Let's see what we can learn about the Holy Spirit. Let's see what we can learn about Christ. Let's see what we can learn about the Bible. And I went through two weeks of training them on the cross as a primer of the ten areas of systematic theology. What about Satanology? See anything about Satan at the cross? Absolutely. So sometimes what we think is just a small, simple little thing in the Bible. The reason I point this out is, you think that I'm just rambling, but I believe it or not, I'm aiming at something. I'm, I'm like I got a deer in my sights. I'm pulling back the arrow right here. Verse 6. As David describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Is David talking about his salvation? Sam never thought about it. What is Paul quoting here? Psalm 32. And if you go back and study the life of David, you will know that Psalm 32 is a psalm that David wrote. I believe it's written in the superscription. The psalm David wrote after he had gone into Bathsheba. David was not a new believer. He had been a believer a long time. And yet Paul uses David as an example of the importance of the gospel. This is the point that I want us to get. You and I haven't outgrown our need of the gospel. It is just as fresh and just as powerful and just as real. And right out there in your hallway, you have a picture that from the very first time I ever saw it stayed with me because I'm in that picture. Did you see the picture on your way in? You see Christ standing there holding the prodigal? And He's standing there wasted, hungry, tattered, broken. Did you know that the story of the prodigal son is not teaching salvation? It's teaching the restoration of an erring believer. And you know what that is? That's the gospel. The truth, the beauty, the glory, the power of the gospel is just as real when you're a believer who has gone off track and you have strayed as far as you can stray and you have squandered all of your father's resources and there you are in the pig pen and you are filthy and you are hungry and you are tattered and torn. And it's oftentimes then that we come to ourselves. Don't ever count a believer out as long as they're breathing. God has done some pretty good things with some believers that the world counted out. He will be the one that will come and pick you up and carry you home. And I've been there. That picture is me. That's why chapter 4, which is 
kind of culminating Paul's teaching on justification, not only uses David long after he had believed as a young shepherd boy, but isn't it interesting if you go on through the book of or the chapter four, when it talks about Abraham, it doesn't just talk about his salvation. Yes, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. But then he takes him through his whole experience of looking at his own body, which is now dead and looking at the deadness of Sarah's room, womb. He did not consider himself to be dead. He believed in the promise of God years after he had been justified by faith. The same power was at work. The same power was alive and powerful and real in his life. And really Romans 12, 1 and 2 is not the theme chapter of Romans. I think you know that. It's Romans... 117. The just shall live by faith. You can take that. You know, there are a lot of passages that you can take two ways in the Bible. The just shall live by faith. In other words, we will come alive spiritually by faith. We'll be justified and come alive. How wonderful. The just, those who are believers, shall live Resurrection life, the life of Christ, how? By faith. That's what Paul wants us to get here because if you turn the page with me, we finally come back to that therefore that we started with and I hope all of this makes sense to you because now he says, therefore having been justified by faith, we, we who believe have peace with God. Shall we take it as we have peace with God, a positional statement? Or shall we take it, let us have peace with God, an exhortation? Have it your own way. Because they're both true. We have a standing of peace with God because we're reconciled. But we should be living in peace with God in a spiritual life. <clears throat> Notice. I'm going to read verse 5 in chapter 5. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Now I want to ask you a question, and I'm going to be done. Is Romans 5, 1 through 5 true in your life? Is it? You say, yeah, I've been justified by faith. I have peace with God. No, don't stop in verse 1. Because Paul talks as if the rest of the first five verses is true of all of us, and unfortunately it's not. And the reason he does it this way is because he's setting in front of us that Christian ideal we talked about at the beginning. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Here's the Christian ideal. Do you really have peace with God? Do you rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? If you do, by the way, this is going to become big in Romans 8. If I say Romans 8, what do you think of? 
What? Romans 8. Ah, all things work together for good that those who love God, those that are called according to His purpose. <clears throat> I'm going to shock you when we get to Romans chapter 8. <laughs> because there's a lot more to Romans 8.28. You know what, what else there is to Romans 8.28? Romans 8. Did you know that Romans 8.28 is one of eight statements that must all go together? I've never heard that before. We'll get to it tomorrow. And it'll make Romans 8.28 come alive to you. Because I'm sure that some of you have experienced, as I have, things that haven't worked out for the best. Now, ultimately, we can say somehow God's going to work it all out. But did He work it out for the best for you? Not always. How come? Because I didn't let Him. Well, what should I have done? Maybe a few of those seven other things mentioned in Romans 8. We'll get to it. But this is a link. This is a key. If you want to take this as a statement of positional truth, we have peace with God, that's great. If you're going to make that boast, that's great. But let me tell you something. If you are not rejoicing in hope of the glory of God, if you are not glorying in tribulations, if you are not working tribulation producing perseverance, character, and hope, and if hope never disappoints you and the love of God is being poured out in your hearts, I'll buy your argument. But if you tell me that you have peace with God and these things are not a reality in your life, I'll tell you you're a liar. Now you may be a believer. I'm not questioning that. But you're a believer who's not believing. Unbelieving believers is the biggest problem the church has. Because the just are not living by faith. You know, it's like people who say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Of course, I'm a drug addict and, and you know, I steal and, and I do all of this other stuff. But yeah, I'm a believer. You hear it all the time. Okay, I'm not going to question you. Listen, I don't question people. If they tell me they trust Christ, I believe them. But if they tell me they trust Christ and they're not walking by faith, something's wrong in their life. They need help. They need rescue. They need deliverance. They need, above all, instruction. Why? Because we should be like the little apostle. I'm going to close with this. In Orissa State, India, 2007-2008, there was a horrible persecution. By the way, Nan and I just came out of India. A horrible persecution broke out while we were there. 10,000 Christians were driven from their homes. Homes were burned to the ground. People who have nothing lost what little they had. Churches and Bible schools were burned to the ground. Well, this happened in Orissa in 2007-2008. Only in that persecution, there were hundreds of pastors who lost their lives. Hundreds and hundreds of pastors were burned to death, hacked to death, beaten to death, stoned to death, so many different ways. 
a little 10-year-old girl whose father was a pastor, when the mob came and surrounded their house, her mother stuck her in a little cupboard and said, don't come out. She and her husband went out. They were immediately killed. The house was set on fire. The house burned down around this little 11-year-old girl, and she was found barely alive with burns over most of her body. They took her to a hospital. They did all kinds of emergency treatments to get her alive. Her whole body to this day is scarred from head to foot. As soon as she was able to get up out of that hospital bed, her mom and dad were dead. They said, where are you going to go? She said, I'm going back to my village. They said, why would you go back? where they killed your mother and father and burned your house to the ground. She said, because they need to know Jesus. Want to be a warrior? We've met warriors. Most of them look like that little 11-year-old girl. They don't look like the Hollywood version. They're old men, old women, crippled old people, hurting old people who just won't quit because they love Christ too much. I hope that will be your experience and mine as well. I pray that we can be like that little girl. And I pray that the transformed life will grab hold of us while we're here this weekend. Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for these dear people. How I pray that you will impress on each and every one that they are a unique creation of your hand. They are an individual within themselves. They are someone that you have a plan for that no one else will ever be able to fulfill. Father, how I pray that we will not waste our time on this earth. Time is short. The years, the days fly by. But Father, for us to accomplish even one little task that you gave us to do, to give the gospel to that one person who believes it, to give the word of encouragement to the hurting brother or sister that's suffering, to give a helping hand, a supporting arm, a word of encouragement, whatever it may be. Father, I pray that you will use us in a mighty way to make a difference in this world because any difference that we make in this world is going to echo throughout all eternity. Bless each and every one here this evening as we go our way tonight. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.